Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is Chris Remo. And Chris is one of those guests where I feel a bit weird introducing him. Um, Purely because, you know, I could say that he's he's part of Campo Santo, who's responsible for the, the excellent video game Firewatch. And I could also say that he hosts Idle Thumbs and is is part of the many podcasts that encompass the, the Idle Thumbs network. But um, in all likelihood, you know very well who Chris Remo is, and that is exactly why you're listening to this show. And if you are one of those people, then, then welcome. Um, please dig into the back catalogue. There are countless amazing discussions with amazing people about the the games that have shaped their life and discussions that makes it sound a bit too too formal it's fun this is a this is a this is a fun show for for fun people um if you want to get in touch you can always email the show it's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or at checkpoint show on twitter or forward slash checkpoints podcast on facebook it's very important to have consistent branding there's been a, a neat little uptick on iTunes ratings and reviews the the past couple of weeks, which is wonderful. Thanks very much if you have. Uh, if you haven't and you do like the show, uh, that that is always massively appreciated. Or simply telling a friend, either in the real world or in the virtual world. The GMA nominations are still open too. If you fancy throwing us a nomination, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, but I think I'll, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna keep this as brief as I can because I'm pretty sure most people, <laughs> most people probably skip over it anyway. So I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. As always, thanks very much for listening and downloading. Please subscribe. Let's get on with the show. Let's do a, a formal introduction then. So, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome. Um, thank if you, you. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Chris Remo. I am a game developer and podcast host. I work for a studio called Campo Santo, and we recently released our, not so recently anymore, I suppose, released our first game, Firewatch, uh, and uh, that is out on PC and PlayStation 4. Uh, we, I also co-host a podcast called Idle Thumbs and help run a podcast network called the Idle Thumbs Network. And I'm, uh, I co-host another show, the Idle Book Club, and I produce uh, another show called Idle Weekend. And, uh, you know, so I have a hand in a, in a bunch of different podcasts as well. Um, I'm a composer and game designer and, uh, done a bunch of different things over the years i'll, I'll stop there clearly games have played a, a pivotal role in your life so if you can remember chris what was your very first experience of a video game um i can't be 100 percent certain but i am i am fairly confident that my first experience was with a video game was the game gorillas.bass was the, the ba- q basic uh version of gorillas um 
I don't know what gorillas <laughs> is. What, what is okay. Uh, so it, this was this was essentially a uh, an example game that that came installed with QBasic, which was a a basic compiler that must have just been shipped with P, with a lot of PCs as kind of standard pack-in software. You know, it was a, obviously if you're familiar with BASIC, it's a it's a straightforward programming language that a lot yeah. of people started learning. And uh, it at, at least this version, QBasic, came with uh, a game called Gorillas, which was a very one of those games, sort of like uh, if you ever played Scorched Earth or something like that, where you um, sort of set a uh, uh, an arc and a sort of power level and then you lob a projectile and you play against a computer which is firing back at you so it's a sort of um, side 2D side side perspective game where you and an opponent either a human or a computer uh, lob projectiles back and forth at each other and uh, you know one of you dies and um, that I, sounds there, great that sounds like a multiplayer Angry Birds yeah, it's like a very simple forerunner to Angry Birds. It's, yeah, and that, that was an entire genre of game. Scorched Earth is the one that more people would probably know. That was a full-on game that was actually, I think it was shareware. Okay. And had, you know, levels and lots of different weapons and so on. But Gorillas was just a very simple version of this where Gorillas threw bananas at each other, as I recall, in a sort of very simple cityscape. And I think it was, you know, like a two-color game. Um, I I was never allowed to have video games growing up, um, but my my mom worked for a real estate company and at one point this was this would have been the early 90s she had to learn how to use a spreadsheet which you know at the time was not um a ubiquitous tool the the way it is now yeah and so she borrowed a computer from her office it was a, a i think an ibm xt and uh brought it home and I thought that was amazing, and so I taught myself how to navigate DOS. She actually sort of gave me a crash course in how to navigate DOS, which was a thing that she herself had just learned um, uh, for her job, and, uh, you know, sort of how to change directories and look through the file structure and run programs, and and I just was, I just poked around the hard drive and found everything that I could that would actually run. I mean, I, 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 WordPerfect was a very simple uh, word processor, that was common at the time. It was sort of the standard at the time um, before Microsoft Word's dominance. And I would play around with that because you could, I, it was like, it was interactive. You know, I mean, yeah, anything totally. you want to intrinsically, yeah, exactly, intrinsically entertaining. And then when I found Gorillas, I'm like, oh my God, it's an actual game. So you and got, then your I, first game was sort of um, received by stealth, basically. Oh, yeah. I mean, I my until I, essentially until I was in late high school, I, Every game I played was essentially by stealth. I mean, I, I again, I, I wasn't really allowed to. My, my parents wouldn't, didn't actually buy me games ever. Um, so you know, I would play things at my friends. I never, I never had a console growing up, and so any console games I played, I would just play at a friend's house. Um, so what, why, their, why weren't you, know, you allowed games? Like, what was the the rationale? Did they just not see any? Oh, sort of I just value had those kinds of parents. Yeah, I didn't really have toys, and so I mean, I had like Lego. You know, there were certain things my parents would thought were sort of valid forms of entertainment, right? And so um, they would buy me all the, you know, not all the Lego I want. They wouldn't buy me. They they were sort of against the, like, expensive kind of license sets. But if I wanted just, like, a huge bin of Lego, they would buy me that. Um, And they'd buy me any book I wanted, you know, even if it was some, like, 
trashy sci-fi thing or whatever. They just figured reading generally is valuable. So so we'll buy you whatever books you want if you want yeah, books. It's so a, a um, very sort of practical decision ultimately. But did did you did you know about games? Like was that was that like a, a bone of contention for you? Like, you know, you're um, always seeking them out or you know, I don't think I I mean, I, I knew that they existed. I mean, friends had Nintendos and stuff, but it wasn't something that I I remember sort of uh, arguing about with my parents. I, because I don't think it... Because uh, this might have been different if I grew up now and I had access to the internet from yeah. an extremely young age, but I wasn't... The way... I, this whole attitude my parents had, you know, they limited the amount of TV time my brother and I had, you know... Um, so I wasn't really exposed to just the nonstop barrage of marketing that I think would have made me angry about this. It wasn't really so much something that I like was angry about it, argued about it was just something to work around. You know what I mean? So it's like I found ways to play video games. Like I, I found ways to play computer games, to get games on the computer and play them. But it was more like a sneaky thing. It wasn't like a, I wouldn't get in like yelling matches or something. I wasn't like mad about it. It was just, oh, that's just the reality. This is just something that I have to find a way to, to figure out. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily mean that you'd be like some rebellious uh, kid, but more that, you know, often the things that we aren't allowed are the things you, know, you want the most. It's classic sort of psychological thing. So did, did that, mm. even though you, you weren't kind of arguing, saying, I want this, I want this, but were you kind of like, did they become more special in your eyes because you had no access to them? That's that's a good question. I actually, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, they're... Um, I don't know. I, I definitely didn't grow up with video games being a part of my identity, right? Like I, you know, in recent years, there have been a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of sort of sturm and drang around um, gamers and people like internalizing this identity as a gamer and it being very personal and important yeah. to them and so on. And I don't really think I had that. I think music was more that for me as I grew up, especially as I got into my adolescence. Music was really the thing that I sort of defined myself around and that felt like an intrinsic part of me um and I, I there were a lot of video games i really liked and played a lot and there were some that i was like obsessive around like civilization i remember playing the original civilization which was on like 13 floppy disks or something um that a friend gave me and oh my you know i played that game for more hours than one could ever <laughs> count um but that's an interesting example though like is that would that have been um I, I'm projecting entirely now on, on the type of parents you might have had, but that that seems like if if any sort of game they would have thought, okay, that's okay, it would be something like Civilization. <laughs> you know, it's funny, yeah. I maybe they would have, but I never talked to them about it, so right, I don't okay, know. Okay. Um, I think actually the games that I tried to, so I I do remember there were games I tried to kind of convince my mom were worthwhile. Uh, my dad, it would have been pointless to to bother, not because he was like more strict, but just because I just know he wouldn't have been interested. <laughs> But I think I try. I remember expressly trying to convince my mom that LucasArts adventure games were valuable, you know, and worthwhile sort of forms of expression because they weren't about violence and killing. And, you know, they they were about these characters and they were telling these really well constructed stories and they, you know, took place in these richly imagined worlds. Um, and I, I still don't really think she understood what any of it was. You know, I don't think I convinced her of anything but i think she you know appreciated that yeah. i was 
like that I cared about something. The fact you're willing to make such an argument about it surely is yeah. Is worth I mean, it something. didn't it didn't convince her to buy them for me, <laughs> but I think she sort of was like, oh well, this seems like something that's fine for you know. She didn't say I now that I know you're playing those, I forbid you to play them. She didn't say that. It was more just like, oh okay, I guess you have this thing that that you like, and it sounds like a fine, totally fine thing. So if you're going to figure out a way to get them, then that's fine, I guess. Yeah. So. But what, like one of the things that I, I, I like to ask people about is, especially like um, in the kind of early 90s and stuff, the, the, there wasn't, gaming wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now, and it was still very much like a niche kind yeah. of classic. Especially P- PC gaming. Like, especially PC gaming. So I like... So for me personally, as well, like when I was in school, I I, I made friends because of games and like people that I formed mm. groups around games. So did you you have that even though you didn't have like as much access as as most yeah, kids? Yeah, kind I guess. of. Um, I you know I think it was in my case it was probably less forming groups around games and more we all got each other into things at the same time. You know, so like when one person would find a thing, whether it was a a movie or a book or a, or whatever else or a game it's like that became the thing. And so I remember going over to my friend, uh, my friend's, uh, my friend's house, Kenny Duncan. And where is this? Sorry, just to put it in like a space. Oh, Oh, um, so I was born in San Francisco. My family moved, uh, when I was a kid to New York, which is where my family was from. Um, then we moved back to California and I mainly grew up in San Diego, California. So this, 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 um, I'm would have been right after very soon after moving to San Diego, California, Okay. Um, my friend, my friend Kenny and I would play LucasArts adventure games, and we would, I would go over to his house, and the two of us would play them, you know, one over the other's shoulder, and we would sort of trade off who's at the computer, and it was, it was total, it was like this, this co-op experience that, you know, that wasn't formally part of the game, um, but it was, we, we just, for, I mean, just for hours and hours and hours, we would just get completely drawn into the crazy world. Uh, of those games and and would be throwing out like possible puzzle solutions and and uh, that that was sort of a that was definitely like a cultural uh, touchstone for us you know oh, was, absolutely was, and yeah. a lot of people as well that that sort of the the kind of communal aspect of single player games like before the internet mm-hmm. is is a big yeah. sort of common thread that comes up with people totally and it's super exciting especially the LucasArts games because they're like they were the first kind of open world game, so to speak, where you can, you know, here's a place, go and explore and push at the limits of it, essentially. Yeah, I mean, they were they were highly linear, but they sort of felt like they had a world contained yeah, in them. Yeah, totally. Man, here's a, here's a funny one. Speaking of, um, th- this is a funny example of the way that my weird, like, sort of way that my parents brought me up slamming into what you're talking about in terms of games um, you, you know, communities forming up around games and yeah. people introducing to each other. So uh, I remember one of my friends introduced us to X, X-Wing, the game X-Wing, which I think came out, I want to say, like 1992 or 1993. The kind of the simulator X-Wing TIE yeah, Fighter the, game. Yeah, the, the LucasArts. Um, yeah, the original X-Wing. Yeah, okay. Um, there was X-Wing, then TIE Fighter, then X-Wing versus TIE ah, Fighter. okay, okay, okay. That X-Wing versus TIE Fighter was several years later. So the original X-Wing... And then the original TIE Fighter came out, I think, within a couple of years of each other in the early 90s. And um, and I remember playing, I played X-Wing before I knew what Star Wars was. How um, weird. I didn't, yeah, I'd never seen Star Wars. And I, I'd probably heard the phrase Star Wars, but it wasn't, like, I had no, it meant, it was like a dead phrase to me. It meant nothing. Um, and so, but I played this game, and it had all this stuff in it, X-Wings and a wings and all the and like tie fighters and 
and uh, this whole like, world that was clearly extremely richly imagined and and depicted in this game. But to me, it was just like it, it didn't come from a movie. It just it came from this game, and I was like, "This is a, a, this is amazing! Like this is incredible." <laughs> Have you guys seen this like X-wing thing? It's like <laughs> crazy spaceships that fly around and fight each other, and it's amazing. And then Tie Fighter came out, and um, and the, that one was even more amazing. I mean, that I remember uh, buying Tie Fighter uh, used by way of uh, this was the thing that used to happen: used games advertised in the back of PC Gamer magazine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I would I remember I saved saved up $20 or whatever and uh sent it like in the mail weirdly to uh I sent dollars in the mail to <laughs> you know an address in the back of PC Gamer magazine and I got my copy of Tie Fighter and I'm like this is crazy and I remember I would say I would like say this to kids at elementary school or something and they're like yeah dude that's Star Wars like <laughs> literally everybody knows what that is and i'm like it's crazy and uh and i and those that same group of friends uh we went to disneyland which was a couple hours away from from where i grew up and um we rode star tours which was uh i mean what is but this was a, this was the earlier version of star tours than than what's there now uh this sort of simulator ride where you you sit in a in a big room and it like jostles around as though you're in a star you know spacecraft going yeah. through space and on the screen is like crazy star wars stuff happening and and i was like oh it's like x-wing <laughs> and and i and I, I all of that stuff i did before i ever saw the before i ever saw those movies um and uh, i mean i eventually then obviously later ended up seeing those movies and thought they were amazing but uh but yeah i was introduced to all that stuff through video games that that's a wonderful story. I'm I'm glad that the the films lived up to this universe you'd imagined in your in your head. Oh yeah, totally. I, I think especially the first Star Wars movie and and Empire in different ways, but yeah. Yeah, no, no, they're, they're great. Um, on a as you were sort of telling that story, then um, an episode I recorded a couple of months ago with a, an Australian comedian called uh, John Robertson. He had a very similar story, but in a much sort of darker uh, darker tinge. His his grandfather um, introduced him and taught him about Nazis in the Second World War via Wolfenstein 3D when, <laughs> oh, when he was about ten years old. I think his dad was wow. a bit of a, a bit of a kook and thought he needed to learn this lesson about the past, which is yeah. just crazy, absolutely crazy. Um, so uh, at this sort of like around the sort of nineties and stuff, when you're you're going to be experiencing like when the LucasArts Adventures came out, that that was a real kind of boom period for. Nintendo and so did, did were you able to sort of get access to any of that stuff or did that kind of were you just a PC gamer at heart um I was absolutely a PC gamer for sure because we had a computer at home um yeah definitely I was aware of Mario and Zelda and to some extent Metroid I mean I the only one of those games I ever really played very much was probably the original Super Mario Brothers and maybe Super Mario 3 a little bit yeah um I probably actually played and I probably had pretty much played the entirety of the of Super Mario Brothers one just at friends houses because that game was so incredibly ubiquitous. I mean, that game was everywhere, um, but I didn't have a very personal connection to that stuff. It was more just like, oh, yes, Mario. Mario is like a fixture of the universe. Like it just Mario exists, you know, yeah, like totally. it, was, it was like a given, but it wasn't something that was personal to me because I didn't have it at my house and uh, you know I only really ever played it like secondhand and when you went over to a friend's house 
they didn't want you just playing their Nintendo. Um, uh, however you much know. you you asked them. Right, because to them it was normal, and to me it was like this crazy thing. Absolutely. Um, but I but I do remember seeing like Star Fox at a friend's house. And being like, I don't know why everyone thinks this is amazing. Because at my house, I have fucking X-Wing. I mean, I didn't say <laughs> fucking X-Wing. I'm sorry. I don't know if I can. You can swear. Of course language. you can. Okay. Um, but like the difference between what was going on with 3D graphics on PC. at the I mean, 3D graphics on PC were quite primitive at the time as well. But, you know, if the difference between what Star Fox looked and felt like and what X-Wing and TIE Fighter looked and felt like was crazy. I mean, it was a, it was a drastic difference and that's not to slam Star Fox like now in retrospect I see how cool Star Fox is oh yeah totally um, you know but but no it I just was... wasn't as big of a, a novelty clearly because you had access to a, a much yeah. like uh, and much more more niche still because PC was still very much like I mean I was hugely into games obviously as, as a kid but I, because I didn't really know any the only people I knew had access to PCs would probably just have had the LucasArts Adventures, and that's that's as far as we go. Maybe load right. up a flight simulator and then just be bewildered and just turn it off because we couldn't take off or even start the engines, basically. <laughs> so you know what's funny about that is it's true PC gaming was more niche in some ways, especially among children, but I actually don't think that's true in the broader culture because when you... There's a, a really fascinating thing I've become aware of uh, in the last decade or so is how much... So what basically happened, I think, in the mid to late 90s, basically, this sort of started, I think, in the PlayStation 1 era, PC games and console games started to sort of merge and approximate each other, and then they all basically entered a period of sort of sustained and some would argue permanent targeting of adolescence, yeah. where, you know, it used to be console games are, were largely targeted at children, and PC games were largely targeted at adults, and there were exceptions in both cases. And but but that that was like kind of. And so as a kid playing PC games, a lot of it was like incomprehensible to me. You know, there were a lot of crazy war games and very complicated games that were definitely over my head. Yeah. Um. And even the Lucas Arts games. I mean, I now have worked. I mean, I wrote a game with Ron Gilbert, who designed Monkey Island, and I I worked for Tim Schafer for several years. And and those guys did not see themselves as making games for kids, even though probably a huge chunk of their audience was kids. Um, they just saw themselves as creating like interactive fiction for people, probably mainly people of their own age, um, which is interesting because, uh, you know, surely that the, the reality was different than what they intended, to, at least to some extent. Yeah. But what's interesting is if you actually go back and, and look into um, the state of reporting and criticism around video games at the time, it was actually incredibly common for mainstream news outlets in the early to mid 90s. Um, and I mean, publications like the New York Times, Time Magazine, USA Today, outlets like that to just run reviews of PC games because those this actually came up. Um, I spoke to Chris Swellentrop a few uh, oh, like yeah. last month uh -huh. or the month before. And, and yeah, he and I share an interest in this. Actually. Yeah, yeah. And, and he, he was, we were talking a lot about like how much great, like really excellent video game writing there was. And I think it was kind of late, late eighties, early nineties, like uh -huh. really intelligent, thoughtful and kind of putting it in a, a much broader cultural context that you just don't, don't really get even now with like how much content there is you, you very rarely get things as um insightful and concise and stuff it's, it's amazing yeah the new york times i mean chris probably mentioned this but the new york times ran a regular weekly video game column that was very 
PC focused because again, PC was mainly what was targeting adults at the time all throughout the nineties. I mean, I think that column ran until the early two thousands. Um, and, and eventually it stopped, but, uh, but the late eighties and, and much of the nineties, it was, um, actually despite to younger people, PCs must've seeming probably seeming like a very, just kind of weird plat place for, for gaming to exist. Um, it was actually really, I mean, games like Civilization, SimCity, Myst, those are very different games, um, but they had a very kind of um, mature sort of tenor to them, all things considered. Yeah. Uh, and were largely targeted at people who were a little bit older. And those were massively successful games. Those, those, none of those were niche games. There were a lot of niche games on computers as well, but there were also mega hits that weren't being marketed to seven-year-olds, you know? And um, so it was, a, it was an interesting... It was weird. It was kind of weird to be a kid who, who whose only entryway to games was PC gaming, because, again, a lot of it was, was over my head, but sometimes because you just had what you had... Like, I had Civilization just because I had access to it, not because I, like, specifically wanted Civilization. I just... A friend... It just, it just appeared in front of me, yeah, basically. Yeah. If I had the choice between that and Super Mario Brothers, I probably would have just played Super Mario Brothers because it's so, I mean, you know, for a kid, it's just more instantly exciting. But because I didn't have that option, I just dug into this weird, complicated global strategy game, which, you know, the first Civilization is not as complicated as, like, Civilization Four, for for example, but was still pretty complicated, all things considered. Um, but I just played it because it's literally all, like, the thing that I had access to, and I thought it was, a you know, I just... I play. I just thought it was amazing. Yeah. After I sort of got past that uh, that hump, and and like it's it's interesting because like I I I remember at around sort of I guess I must have been like eleven when the when everyone had a Super Nintendo basically that was like right. my my group's console and we all sort of swapped games and stuff, and one of the biggest hits um, was SimCity. Like everybody loved SimCity, and I think it, and it was one of the only games like that you know that you could get on a on a console and that's right, all anyone yeah. had access to and so i think if, if the if, if the roles were reversed if there was like a civ like proxy on on a super nintendo i think i think it could have been you know as um as as, as you know people would have enjoyed it as much as you enjoyed it i think it was totally a, a matter of access even though i think the super nintendo sim city had like a giant bowser would come in and destroy the city and stuff but still, the, the core <laughs> right, game yeah, was basically yeah, the same. Right. Yeah, I think, yeah. Um, but so you, you clearly like. I mean, I'm not sure how much of this would um, would be you looking back sort of retrospectively, but like how much. Clearly, games weren't like central to your life. Um, so, was it ever a case where you thought this would be something that you'd like to do or get into? Or no, I don't know. I um, I didn't have that as a goal. Um, I. Uh, when I was a kid, I just I didn't really think about that stuff at all in the way that probably a lot of kids don't. No, I know some some do, but but, but I didn't. Um, and then by the time I got to high school, which is you know I think where people start developing a bit more of a self conscious identity. I you know like I sort of briefly mentioned earlier, I was just music was really the thing that I I totally thought I was just going to be in a rock band. I thought that was going to be my life. You know I had friends we played in bands together and and what was your what did you wrote, play? Um, I, so I, when I was a kid, I, I took piano lessons. Um, I started late compared to a lot of kids, but, but that was sort of the instrument I played. And then, um, I started just learning guitar 
in high school and eventually learned drums as well. And then I played a lot of bass, which is very similar to guitar. Um, and, uh, and then when I went to college, I, um, I studied music. That was my degree because I still thought, okay, this is what I'm totally, I'm totally going to be a rock musician. And I would write, you know, like Alba would write entire albums in college. Just by yourself. And yeah. Yeah. Um, Were you in bands? Not in college. I played in a couple bands in college, but they never really did anything. It was never as fun as it was in high school, mainly, I think, because um, there was just all kinds of other stuff to do in college. Um, but I still, that was still my sort of like aspirational goal. Um, what, but sort I, of, then what sort I, of songs? I'm, I'm just, I'm, this is like oh, weirdly a just, very common thing with uh, with devs, like most devs oh, is it really? have been oh, that's in a band. Um, uh, oh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't. I don't even know if I was aware of that. That's so. That's so interesting. Um, yeah. No, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I just. I don't even. I don't know how to really even answer what kinds. I mean, I. I mean, I, I rock music, I guess, but that's such a meaningless, uh, such a meaningless genre, really. Like, um, if, if you're, uh, <laughs> this is I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but if if you're you're sat in your bedroom and you're 17 and you're you've got a guitar. And you're imagining you're playing on stage with with some band. Like, what sort of bands would you be playing with? Oh man, I don't even I don't even know because you know I went through like phases. You know, I went through really distinct phases that were very different. You know, I um, I uh, went. You know, I mean, I went through a like a classic rock phase, which I think is common for a certain kind of kid in high school. Yeah, where I was just obsessed with like every classic rock band under the sun and knew them inside and out. I think the one that really stuck with me, I think for the long haul was the who, which is funny because it took me a long time to get into the who. But then when I did, I think of like uh, Pete Townsend, I think remains my sort of um, like just ult ultimate figure in rock and roll. Um, but then, when you say inside you know, the night, do you mean like the whole like backstory of the band and what the lyrics mean and all that sort of stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of the I I I feel like in terms of rock and roll, Pete Townsend achieved a kind of um, amazing an amazing um, meeting of simplicity and depth. You know, I he the. There aren't a lot of Who songs that are extraordinary com extraordinarily complex, especially if you, you know, compare them to like prog rock and all kinds of the, a lot of weird mm -hmm. stuff that was sort of contemporary. I mean, I was also obsessed with like Pink Floyd, for instance, and and King Crimson and bands like that. Um, but there was so much nuance and and uh, and subtlety within the uh, the range that 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 band laid out. And I also just thought every member of that band was like a completely indispensable part, which was something that I loved. I always hated, um, I, I always hated when people referred to a band as its singer, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was something that drove me crazy and still kind of does to be honest. And I loved that the who, even though I in particular admired Pete Townsend, I loved that the who as a band was this unit that was completely you know, every member was in, was was indispensable. I mean, I know that Townsend and and uh, and Daltrey are still playing together now, so I mean, you know, whatever. But that band, I mean, that ba that that I just the Queen. I feel the same way about right. Like people talk about Freddie Mercury, and Freddie Mercury is amazing. I mean, Freddie Mercury is like untouchable yep. um, for for much of what he did. But also, when you really spend a lot of time with that band, 
Queen, the band, all four members of that band were totally indispensable to the combined creative success of, of that band, you know? Um, so anyway, that I had the, my, my classic rock phase. I had, uh, I got a huge Motown phase. I had a, I had sort of a smaller, um, prog rock phase. Um, I had a sort of like uh, modern kind of wacky indie, like sort of flaming lips yeah. stuff phase. I went through a lot of different rock. It's like the phases. classic trajectory of the the music sort of snob <laughs> when you that hit to like is, 19 yeah, yeah. I, i'm sure that's completely true and you know i uh yeah um so it, it really depended what era you hit me oh and then the sort of the post-rock phase is sort of uh godspeed you black emperor oh, yes. sort of that that was know, my that, that was my jam for about three years that was my, my yeah. band we just wanted to be godspeed and play oh, guitars yeah, with sure. bows and stuff yep yep, uh, yep. yeah I, probably a lot of the albums i was writing in college were like if you combine if i i mean i i don't mean to suggest that the, the actual quality was anywhere on this level but if you sort of like the stuff that was going on in my head if you could find a midpoint between um godspeed you black emperor and you will know us by the trail of dead and elvis costello that would have been that would have been like what the sort of the fantasy version of what of what i wanted to do you know what i mean the yeah sort no, of, that that's that's some band yeah that is some band <laughs> Um, yeah so, someone but, do that someone do that for real yeah, please. absolutely um so like one of the things that you know people you go to university you, you you're allowed to reinvent yourself or like you know project your your image to the the the, the new world you're now in so you know you, you you bring certain records and you bring whatever certain uh, mm -hmm. books and things that you can display um so were were video games that for you did you bring any video games with you did you search the, for oh. that kind of community no not really um Were you kind of done with games for a period no i just didn't by that point i don't think they were enough of like what i was sort of what was consuming me in my life yeah. i didn't really intentionally bring or not bring them i just sort of um i don't know i, I think that's kind of when i started becoming a console gamer a little bit um uh, i mean i'm i'm at this point the pendulum has swung back and i'm 100 percent like 98% a PC gamer again yeah. at this point in terms of what I actually spend time with. But in college, I, I, that was probably when I was at my high point of console games just because it was easier. But I also didn't have a TV in my dorm room or anything. So I just didn't, I went, a, I went a, a while in college, not really like playing a lot of games, not intentionally, but just because it wasn't convenient. Um, so it wasn't like I a did, sort of dorm thing, like playing like, I don't know, networked no, well, Quake okay, or something. Well, okay, there were two exceptions to that. So in my freshman year, uh, one of my roommates uh, was this guy, Jurok. He was a Korean guy who was uh, very, like, Korean, not Korean-American, um, who was uh, a really good StarCraft player, not like a pro StarCraft player, but but a very good StarCraft player. And then halfway through um, that, he was he was my roommate. There were three of us in that, in that, in that room. And then halfway through the, the year, at the second semester, this guy, Brian, I don't know, I want to say Green, maybe, I can't remember, transferred to our into our dorm at literally the complete opposite end of the hall, and he was also a really good StarCraft player. <laughs> and once both of those guys were in the same dorm, at literally the complete opposite ends, like they were farther apart than any other any two rooms in the dorm could be, cor opposite corners, um, LAN StarCraft matches just started happening. And these two guys became like the amazing um, 
dorm StarCraft rivals and people who <laughs> didn't know anything about video games or StarCraft or anything would like cluster up in their dorm rooms and like watch over their shoulder as these guys played these epic StarCraft games. And, you know, those of us who already had a video game predilection kind of got sucked into that orbit a little bit. And that's when I like I was better at StarCraft my freshman year of college than I ever have been since. Um, <laughs> like I because, you know, I would learn from these guys and it was so fun. That is an um, amazing so, image of like two people kind of back to back opposite ends of a car. Oh, it was so cool. It was so much fun. It was so great to watch them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was. And and uh, and, you know, also because it was in person, like everyone, it was just everyone had a blast. Like it was, you know, it wasn't like you get on Battle.net where people are being assholes all the time. Yeah, like, yeah, it was, yeah. you know, I mean, so and it's so an that event not, that's happening like in, in dorms, which is always exciting, regardless of. Right. Right. And because there were two of them and they were both in the dorm whenever one of them would start to get kind of burned out and be like, oh, God, I need to like not not do StarCraft for a while. You know, because there were two of them, those, they would, those periods would never quite be synced up. And so the other one would always manage to coax, coax the other back. <laughs> was back was there like a, a kind of a, a rivalry amongst the dorms? Did they become like two teams that people supported? I don't really remember that being the case personally. I think it, people were more just into the spectacle. Um, I think because they were both just our peers and people we lived with, there wasn't really, I think it would have felt kind of weird for people to like form teams. I'm sure people who were close friends of each of them rooted for them, but it wasn't like I'm team Jurak, I'm team Brian or anything like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, no one was making t-shirts or anything. No, no. Uh, oh, the, the only, the other exception to my, the other like big video game experience I had in college was, um, was, uh, uh, some some older guys in the, in the music major, uh, they were transfer students uh, who who you know came in in junior year, and a couple of them were really into Halo, and I at the time was like uh, I had when I was in high school I played a lot of Quake, um, Quake one and Quake three, not as much Quake two, and so I was like total PC like shooters on a computer are far superior to on a console yeah uh, but you know but I, w I became good friends with these guys and so I, the halo kind of rubbed off on me and i became a complete complete halo obsessive and to this day i like will defend halo to the death in terms of uh its quality as a as a as a shooter and i could you know it's talk still about the best it. one i think i think it's still the best it's amazing one in overall. terms of like combat in terms yeah. of simulating kind of physical um AI combat in, in a very particular way. Halo is, I think, unsurpassed. And um, and we just played endless Halo multiplayer, and I became really good at Halo. And I, you know, we we got really high up there on the uh, on the online charts. I don't even remember what that stuff is called anymore. The Bungie.net stuff. Yeah. And uh, I haven't I haven't really played I haven't played Halo online in a long time, so I probably wouldn't be very good at it now. But uh, but yeah, I I, I mean t we would play like multiple days. On you know I mean sleep no sleep for days I mean it was crazy it was absolutely bananas how much and how intensely we played Halo so Chris are you a, a competitive gamer no 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 not at all I I, ha I mean I have I have been at various points I'm the Halo thing and then Starcraft thing and then also and then um, when Starcraft two first came out I don't even remember when that was anymore maybe 2010 I want to say. Um, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. My my friend Nick Brecken and I, he's one of the co-hosts of the Idle Thumbs podcast, which I do every week. And 
he and I used to work together years previously as journalists. And uh, he and I got into a, a phase that lasted a long time. I would say maybe almost a year where we would play StarCraft 2, 2v2 online pretty much every night. And we got up to, I think, Platinum or Diamond. I don't. So you guys would play as a team? We'd play as a team, yeah. And that was that was really, I think, the last time I really got really competitive in a multiplayer game. And even then, I think I'd already like <laughs> hit some point in my life where I could only do it when I was cooperating with a friend sort of on that two-on-two level. You know, like I couldn't, yeah. I don't think I could have played 1v1 StarCraft even then the way that I did when I was in college and certainly not now. Um, I just, there's, it is, I'm not an old person, obviously, but I, well, not obviously, I guess, if you don't know who I am, but um, <laughs> but I'm, for whatever reason, the older I get, the less, the less interest and in sort of ability I have to maintain my sort of, to, to keep calm in a, in a sort of competitive environment. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, in a, in a virtual, I will say in a virtual environment, I, you know, I definitely, there are really stressful things that I do in my life and there yeah. are, you know, challenging things that happen in my life that I deal with completely fine. And I sort of pride myself on being a very calm person in, in those moments. Um, but in a, in the sort of, um, uh, heightened virtual competitive realm, I just can't do it anymore. I mean, I love that people do. I mean, even after we stopped playing Starcraft two, I watched the like I followed the StarCraft competitive scene closely for a long time. I mean, I love that that exists, but it's just it's no longer for me. But okay, so that, um, actually, no, I need to ask this just that since you you've mentioned being so calm, and I try and ask everybody this: um, what if you have ever uh, rage quits? What was your your worst example of of rage quitting something? Perhaps you wouldn't be. You, you don't strike me. As I don't think who I've done that, and not as certainly not in a multiplayer setting. No, I've gotten frustrated in a single play. I mean, good lord, last night I essentially rage rage quit a live stream. I was streaming. Um, I mean, even that, even saying that, I think is overstating it a bit because yeah. part of it was just performance. But like, I was playing RimWorld, and uh, which I've been streaming live most nights a week for the last week and a half or so. Um, on the Idle Thumbs Twitch channel, which and I I love that game. By the way, I only started playing it about a week and a half ago. That's like the kind of prettied up dwarf fortress, basically. Exactly, yeah. And uh, and last night I started a new colony, and a half an hour into it, um, just this one pirate raider or whatever just came by and killed everyone in my base, and then a bear killed my last person. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm out. I'm done. And I just alt F forward and turned off the stream. Um, but that was kind of more of a joke than anything else. I don't, I don't really have a lot of experiences of legitimately rage quitting where yeah. I was actually mad. You know, I mean, I know people who play Dota two and they have these stories about just being so furious that they break keyboards and stuff. And like, I just don't want, I just don't like even putting myself in a situation where that can happen you know because yeah. when i was a younger person when i was especially like an adolescent and in my early 20s i would just i would get mad at things not at video games necessarily but like you know i think in the ways a lot of kind of shitty young people do um it was just harder for me to to be a centered person generally and as an adult i as i've grown into adulthood i've really tried to make you know, very concerted effort to just be a generally calmer, more mature person. Yeah. Um, 
And so it's not as though I'm like staying away from competition or sort of rage quitting friendly environments because I'm scared that they'll turn me into a monster. It's more that I've just sort of, (laughs) I think, changed. uh, I've just sort of modulated something that makes that just not even. um, Yeah, that's not an issue. Like something that I'm. It's not that it's not an issue. It's that I just don't. I'm not. I seem to have also maybe accidentally removed the part of me that enjoys that competition to begin with. And this, again, like, I can't stress enough, this is not a judgmental thing. Like, I think esports and and extreme competition in gaming is awesome. Like, I've been to the the international Dota 2 tournament twice, even though I don't, I don't really follow that scene personally because I don't know the game very well. But, like, but I totally appreciate it. And I've watched probably hundreds of hours of competitive StarCraft 2 uh, and StarCraft 1. Um, so, I mean, I, I love that stuff. I just, for whatever reason, it's lost its luster for me in terms of my personal involvement in super competitive games. I mean, I I think a lot of that stuff is, is also, um, it's not just the competition. It's, it's an, uh, an appreciation of, of mastery of something. I think that's why stuff like SG, um, games done quick has has become so popular because it's just like, like it's amazing watching people do (laughs) that. I like watching people demonstrate extreme skill i think it's fascinating I yeah just, i love it yeah well on the, on that on that subject then chris what? and i'm and i'm so far from being able to do it myself that it's also you know like it's like a alien it's like oh my god like these people are crazy yeah yeah, yeah. but on that sort of subject what what um if you were going to go into some sort of uh, games then quick scenario what game what game are you best at essentially what game would you use to showcase your, I don't your skills I don't think I'm good. I mean, this is the thing about the internet, right? Is we, if you'd asked me hey, this we know 15, too much, 15 we years know too ago, much. I might've had an answer for you, but now it's like, I couldn't even be, even as a joke, I wouldn't be able to give you an example because I know, because I just have so much empirical evidence at how much more amazing other people are at literally anything I could come up with <laughs> that I, it's like, it would just seem like insulting to those people for me to even be like, well, I'm. I play a pretty mean game of Tetris. Like, no, I don't. I'm garbage compared <laughs> yeah. to people on the internet. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think there was probably a point in my life at which I felt like I was really amazing at Halo, you know. Um, but probably, I mean, and I was relative, I think, to like the entirety of, you know, like when, when you, you know, when you're not actually going to tournaments or playing in a true competitive environment, it can feel that way. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, obviously compared to the actual people who play in MLG or whatever, it's bullshit. So I don't know. Um, I was pretty good at Halo relative to, relative to like an average Halo player at one point. I, um, I don't know. I, I can't think of that many examples. I, you know, it's, I just know how high the bar is. Yeah. I, I used to play Spelunky's Daily Challenge every day and I was, I was going to say, live, yeah, because you, you, that you was really fun. I mean, that, that's one of the, like a. A similar sort of question would be: What game do you think you um, you've spent the most time with? Or, or on a similar yeah. sort of topic, like is there a game that you've kind of had to walk away from because you're like, no, this is this is consuming me a little too much. Um, that usually just happens naturally. I don't think I've ever. I mean, Spelunky, I played every single day for a long time, but eventually, I was just only playing the daily challenge, and so. That that's there's sort of a built-in time cap, yeah. On that. You know, it's like you die once and that's it. You're done. That could happen two minutes in, um, or it could, obviously you could complete the entire game, which I did a fair number of times. But like, but um, 
it didn't ever really become a problem. And then I, I sort of just eventually stopped just because I just did. I, we, we went on a company um, uh, trip to Yosemite and I'm just like, well, they held an can't, intervention can't for play you today. And then I, and well, it was like, I yell, this is the thing actually. I, it's actually, I, I almost, it's almost too easy for me to walk away. Uh, like the, like the slightest thing will interrupt my sort of playing of a given game. And then that's just it. And I just don't, it's like impossible for me to build to like sort of psych myself up to get back yeah. into it. You know what I mean? I sort of accidentally hold my own interventions all the time. Um, especially now I think cause there's just so much like constantly, there's always something good probably yeah, most days pro- not just something in games but in everything good. absolutely i yeah. mean there's just like infinite stuff out there all the time so um yeah i don't know the game i've probably played most in my life i mean i think for most of my life that would have been the original civilization because i just played so much of it as a kid um i don't know if that's still true or not oh probably the new york times crossword puzzle actually <laughs> because i've played that every single day for the last six years um i've done every new york times crossword puzzle for the last six years uh except that for the last several weeks, I've been totally falling behind in the New York Times crossword because of uh, Imbroglio, Michael Brog's um, iOS game. I don't know if you've played this. I've not played it. I've heard you guys talk about it on the show, but no, I've not, I've not oh played it Oh, my God. Yet. It's amazing. It's an amazing game. And that, uh, so the New York Times crossword, I play it on my iPhone. And like 95% of the time, it's the only game I have on my iPhone. And then every once in a while... Um, an iOS game can, will come out that I become sort of briefly obsessed with. And for a while, that was Fallout Shelter. Um, and then for a little while, it was this game, um, Dug Dug, and not Dig Dug, but Dug Dug. And then um, now it's Imbroglio. And Imbroglio is the first one out of any of these that has actually um, like uh, disrupted my daily New York Times crossword ritual. Some uh, endorsement. It, yeah, it's crazy. I, I like it's shocking to me because uh, the New York Times. I, I'm. It's just been such a mainstay in my life for over half a decade now. Um, so I'm now. I, I'm now sort of cresting my Umbrella obsession, and I'm. I'm going back and sort of cleaning up the New York Times crosswords that I that I didn't finish over the last month or so. Yeah, because they're uh, very different games. It's not like it's scratching the same kind of itch that a crossword. No, they're would. not remotely similar. I don't think I would venture to say. You wouldn't find a lot of pushback on that claim. No. <laughs> um, okay, so like, you know, you, you've had this relationship with games through through your entire life, but at what point did it become something you started to do? Like a, you, you started in journalism, is that right? Yeah, when I was in college, um, I met Jake Rodkin, who um, people, if, if people know Idle Thumbs, they'll know him from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and I met online in college because we were both members of a forum on a website called Adventure Gamers, which is uh, owned by our friend Merrick Bronstring. I mean, he wasn't my friend when I first registered on his website. He was just some guy. Yeah. But that, he's, not, he's now been my friend for a very long time. Um, and Jake and I met on there and just sort of became internet friends. And then it actually turned out by coincidence, I was going to school at UC Berkeley and he was going to school at UC Santa Cruz at the time which are within, you know, an hour and a half or so driving distance apart. Yeah. And so we just started hanging out in person. Um, we just became, you know, friends that way. And Was that, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but was that like, because I, I, I think we're relatively similar ages and I have, um, I've got lots of friends that I met on forums, on, on video game forums. On, mm-hmm. on the, it was the, the Edge magazine video game forum, in fact. Okay. Um, 
and they're like we've all now sort of become friends we've been friends for for a long long time but i remember at the time you know we we would arrange to all meet up somewhere and that was uh a very weird thing like amongst my my my, my normal peers so to speak like oh my god <laughs> right. you're meeting people off the internet whereas like, ev- that's all everybody does now um so was that quite uh, an exciting thing like i mean that's probably the wrong way of putting it but you know what i mean like because every interaction then on the internet was essentially with a with a stranger yeah no it's true i don't um i don't remember i mean i think um the the uh the the there's not a good control group in our case to sort of compare how I weird suppose, that was yeah. because at the time i was a much more of an awkward person than i am now and i would venture to say jake was even more so and so i think that sort of just inherent awkwardness on both of our parts um eclipsed whatever seeming weirdness there might have been from the internet part of it and just meant we were just two incredibly awkward men hanging out <laughs> to get you know what i mean like it's, yeah i mean obviously we got over that but like but uh yeah i think that was enough of a i don't think it would have i don't think it would have been any less weird had we just met each other any other way yeah yeah um given given with the people we were you were, we were working <laughs> with you know the material the raw material on hand so um yeah i didn't although i didn't have that experience very often i will say jake was really the one experience that i had in that regard for a long time and then through jake you know, I met other people, but, um, that was really the one time in my life I can remember sort of like, I know you from the internet, let's meet in person. Yeah. Like I, that was really the, I I've met other people from the internet obviously, but, but, uh, that was the one case where it's like, we've created a friendship now as a result of this, yeah. you know, usually it's more just like an incidental thing. Like, Oh, crazy. Like, hi, I know you from thing. Like, great. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Um, it's interesting that you both met on the uh, on the Adventure Gamers forums because cl- like clearly they had they must have had the, quite an impact on you that you were yeah still... I Jake even more so than on me I think because um, Jake ran Jake had a, a Sam and Max fan site that he helped run and he was involved in this other website called the uh, the International House of Mojo Mix and Mojo which was a general LucasArts fan site um, so I think Jake was d- deeper into that stuff than I was I mean. But just just in general, like you know, the LucasArts games would have been out for a while after that, uh, a while before that. That form, oh, yeah. I imagine. Uh-huh. So yeah. the fact yeah. that that was the the kind of online place that that you went to is is, is quite you know, clearly they they were quite well, important to you. Yeah, I mean, I think in my case, you know, you asked when I went to college, did I sort of bring games with me? Yeah. And, and this is actually directly related to that I, because I didn't. When I sort of started thinking about that stuff again, um, I didn't really have anyone in person to talk about it with. Um, you know, music, I, movies, I, I took, you know, I mean, I was, I was also really, I haven't really mentioned film at all, but I was really obsessed with film as well, Yeah. but it was not hard to find people to share that interest with. And there were, you know, I would take classes on it and stuff. It was, that was very, you know, there, but, uh, game, you know, games and that particular branch of games, not really. And so I went online to talk about that stuff. That was really, ironically, um, no, I don't know if ironically, but it's necessarily the correct term, but, um, I the, I think the reason I went on I, the reason I've ended up in a career centered around video games is is mainly because video games were the thing I had to go online to talk about. Um so it was sort of like a matter of circumstance that that, that ended up yeah being my online persona which eventually reflected back and became my whole my whole professional life. And Jake and I co-founded um eventually so 
<laughs> eventually Jake and I got sort of annoyed, tired of the insular nature of the online adventure game community. Um, sort of being so like obsessed with adventure games at the exclusion of all else. And we thought that that was becoming sort of increasingly, um, as adventure games fell, you know, fell further and further from a position of, of, uh, centrality and importance. Um, we kind of thought that the inward looking nature of that community, and I'm saying this not as like a current judgment, but just like as a reflection of our very like self-important, way of thinking about this stuff absolutely 15, yeah. 20 years ago whenever it was 15 years ago i guess um we uh wanted we were like well this is we we what if we sort of take the sensibility and try to apply it to other things so a few years into our friendship we uh and uh he he sort of brought me into this like incipient project with a bunch of other um people including a, a number of people from the uk and that eventually became idle thumbs which you know we launched in 2004 um and that was really the thing that that's that is what really started my career even though idle thumbs never paid any of us anything and still still hasn't actually paid any of us anything um you know 10 what 12 years later i suppose um that was really the in my case at least that is what's eventually got me a job as a full-time game journalist um, and then that eventually turned into me becoming a game developer. So it really all started with that. But the the, the, the Idle Thumbs, that was essentially like a, 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 just a website. Like a, here's a website about video it was an, games. It was an editorial site, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. We published articles and news and you had a big staff. It was, I don't know, 10 of us maybe in total. And that was one of the things that made it sort of ultimately unsustainable was that there were a lot of uh, different opinions about sort of what the point of Idle Thumbs was and what its editorial voice was. And different groups of us had different ideas about what that was supposed to be, and eventually it just kind of got too annoying for all of us to deal with. So the <laughs> site sort of site sort of petered out until um, Jake and Nick Brecken and I relaunched it as a podcast in 2008, and that's been going strong ever since, pretty much. Yeah, I, I wonder are there are there people that um, have kind of stuck with you through the whole thing? Because I only discovered um, you you through the podcast, like I don't know, maybe six years ago, I suppose. Um, but are there people well, that's, that, I mean, know, that's a long, that's, that's most of the podcast's history. Right yeah, now. no, the original yeah. sort of iteration of it. And, um, I, I have a postcard from you, Chris. I backed the Kickstarter. Ah, I'm, thank I'm, you. I'm a fan. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but that, that was my first interview because, you know, there was like in this sort of, I guess, mid 2000s, there was suddenly podcasts became a thing. And I was very early on that became my, one of my favorite things. Like in video game podcasts were some of the first kind of popular mm-hmm. podcasts that I'd listened to. Um, but were there are there people that you know were fans of the websites originally that have kind of stuck with you? Oh yeah. The, whole thing, yeah, the 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 oldest component of Idle Thumbs that still exists is the Idle Forums, which have remained in continuous operation even when the website went through y- years of of uh, of de- of just being non-existent. The forums, the Idle Forums, have remained in continuous operation since two thousand four, and there are a number of people who to this day are still regulars on the forum and have been there well over a decade. Um, and that's amazing. That is, uh, that is brilliant. Yeah, I think it's great. It's one of the best forum communities you'll find on the internet. One of the best video game communities you'll find. It's very, um, self-policing. It's not, um, you know, it's, it's very welcoming and inclusive and, um, people are, friendly i mean it's a great it's just a great it's a really really great online community i'm i'm very thankful to 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 be part of it 
it's a good thing it's a good thing to create um so presumably like if you if you're you know you founded and are running a video game website you would you would then have to be kind of all in on video games I, i'm assuming that your your kind of um intake of games would have just gone up i'm assuming this is after university as well no i was still i was still in college when we started out of thumbs um in fact my first and my first time my first full-time video game journalist job actually i got i well, i was still a senior in school when i started when i started that job i was hired to be its console editor as someone who i had very little i worked for a site <laughs> called shack shack news which is historically a pc gaming website and i think i was largely hired um because of i guess my writing sample and because i had such a deep familiarity with the stuff that the site's founders actually knew and cared about which was largely pc gaming but they also knew they had to expand to console gaming and i don't know why the hell i was the person who got hired to do that but um but uh, I ended up learning a shitload about console gaming in an attempt to live up to that job. So, so what compelled uh, you to do that then? Like, did you were there sort of things happening in video games that made you think, oh, this is this is an area I'd like to go into, and um, this is really no, interesting. Know, I want to write about this. Or no, there was no like philosophical guideline. It was literally Jake was had had been a sort of uh, reader of Shack News for years. And he saw that they were hiring someone and he, I think he just said, I mean, he literally just suggested, he said, I think you could do this job. You should apply it to it. I mean, and I said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So I did. I mean, it was literally <laughs> that. Um, and was it like, uh, but in your yeah. head, was it just like, oh, cool, this is a cool job? And not yeah, necessarily think, thinking about what may come of it. Well, I definitely didn't think about what may come of it because I would have had no way to have any idea whatsoever. Um, yeah, I just... It no, just I just mean in like, general, oh, like you know, is this is this a career? Is this something I'm starting now, or is this just whatever? It's yeah, I don't in, remember. In college is a job. Remember, um, I think I thought it was cool if I could get a full time job, like before I was even done with college. That yeah. seemed good, um, and I was excited about it. Um, it's not as though I was just like, yeah, I guess I don't know. Like I was really excited about it. Oh, of course, but I don't, yeah. I, but I don't remember. I don't remember if if there was any intentionality, you know beyond being excited but that was a good time uh, for games though in terms of like the it was how yeah. much it kind of it was. kind of early 2000s there was yeah, a that real was 2000, 2005 i think i was hired yeah. there there was a yeah. huge like explosion of of like interesting games everywhere mm -hmm. like in terms of the kind of yeah that was very like early beginnings of indie but then also stuff like like res and ico and all this kind of really interesting stuff on console yeah it was late 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 ps2 era on the sort of eve of the next generation of Xbox 360 and uh, PS3 and stuff like that, um, in the in that just like wonderful like GameCube was in an amazing yeah. time where it was like underappreciated but just releasing amazing stuff constantly. Um, that was a great. That was a really good era for console games. And so were you great just era. kind of getting everything then and trying to sort of catch up? And yeah, do I was. Yeah, I really was. I I really like. Try. I mean, this is. I, I, I this was something I I I had tried to make myself as familiar as possible with everything that was going on at the time, but also I tried to sort of backfill my missing knowledge. Yeah. You know, I played the original Legend of Zelda. I, I mean, I I mean that's just one example, but I I played. I mean, I I remember going on eBay and buying an NES and like I I bought all these old old consoles and I played just tons of games that I'd never played as a kid. Um, and just tried to get as familiar as I could. I mean, I played, I remember playing the entire Metal Gear Solid series, one through 
three and then four came out and I played that. I like, I, I mean, I'm just picking examples at kind of at random sort of, but yeah. I just, I just remember playing tons of old console games to try and sort of give myself a foundation. Does anything yeah. kind of stick out like in the same way that, you know, you discovered Star Wars through X-Wing and you're like, guys, Star Wars I don't is know, amazing. I don't know. And As an like, adult, yeah, I don't know if anything could ever be that, feel that. No, I just mean like going back through games. And no, I know. I'm just trying something. to, th- no, no, I know. I'm just, I'm just saying that probably nothing felt quite like that. Yeah. Just yeah, given yeah. The, you know, but, but I did have, I mean, yes, the, the reason I, I the, the, the original Legend of Zelda was the first game I mentioned is because that game going back and playing that was almost a transcendent experience for me. I remember playing late at night, the original Zelda on my NES that I got from the internet, you know, and, and I remember going to a dungeon the first time and the dungeon music comes in and it's this really simple sound chip that they had in that, in that console. But that music was so evocative and the, the sense, something that I really think games have in a lot of ways gone the wrong direction with is like an overabundance of, of text um, and explicit fiction. I mean, I, I, there are cases where that's great, right? In a LucasArts game where you're actually, where there's actually like really strong writing talent behind it and you're writing dialogue that's human and and nuanced. It's great. But I, I think lore dumps are just the worst, you know, just like big chunks of fantasy garbage is just, I think it's just trash personally. Um, like I'm sorry to offend anyone, I guess, but I don't know. But that I remember playing the original legend of Zelda and I'm like, this is amazing. Like they're not saying almost anything and it's communicating so much ambience and, um, the tone and, this whole thing is just creating an amazing, like enveloping atmosphere. And it just knocked me on my ass. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, this must have fucking blown people's minds when they played this <laughs> for the first time. I can't even imagine. I mean, it was just amazing to me. And the Metroid, Super Metroid, the same thing. I'm like, the, the entire, you know, the first 15 minutes of Super Metroid, like, good luck ever communicating that with like a huge text crawl or like Absolutely. some big voiceover. Like, I mean, it's just, a, I mean, I remember just, there were experiences I had where I, I was, it was uh, there were some there were some examples that were just i thought incredible that must um, have been so exciting like to be it was great like was great yeah going off on a new horizon and then discovering this whole sort of not secret history but kind of undiscovered history that from from your well, past and the, well but a lot of it yeah and, and those games i mean you know super metroid legend of zelda those were games that everyone knew yeah you know when they were around i just didn't play them you know like but i th- these weren't like weird undiscovered gems they were just things i had missed out on um, and you know, that was, a, that was a great, that was a really great, great experience. Um, you, you touched on this, uh, very briefly then when you were talking about playing old games, but, um, you, you mentioned how evocative the, the music in Zelda was. So the, this is like, you know, oh, so good. The, the, this is something that you, you've obviously worked in as well. So, but you haven't mentioned as much, like, did you, <laughs> when did really video game music, anything, anything I've done professionally in this interview no, 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 at all. But that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, but like in terms of video game music like was it zelda or was there a point when you started to kind of not that you would have dismissed it maybe but um just when you started to appreciate it much more or when you sort of thought this is the oh the, yeah the craft I, and the musicality of this is amazing i never i never dismissed it because i grew up listening to the lucas arts adventure game soundtracks yeah well, i mean as i grew up as the, i mean that wasn't like the main thing i listened to but that was no no, no i know what you mean i was aware of that music i, I didn't really listen to it as separate soundtracks because I don't really think that was available at the time, or at least not available the way it is now, you know, where you can just download a soundtrack. That's weird that but, you mention that, though, because I don't remember. That they don't stick out in my head, really. Aside oh, from man, the opening of, um, of Day of the Tentacle, 
I remember that the, sort of the <laughs> right yeah classical score with the bird that was, uh, that was Clint, Clint Bajakian yeah um, no there were some amazing scores I mean I think the Monkey Island soundtrack by um, I mean they were all they were all sort of co-credited to all three of them who were Michael Land Peter McConnell and Clint Bajakian but because I'm a dork I, I know who really was the driving force in each of them uh, they, they all did contribute to all yeah. but Michael Land's Monkey Island music was amazing and um, the uh, and to, I mean, skipping forward almost a decade, Peter McConnell's Grim Fandango soundtrack is, I think, one of the highest achievements in video game music ever. Um, this is another thing that was really different about PC and console, um, that it isn't really better or worse, but it was just different. Um, the, you know, console games, uh, chip, you know, were chip tunes. Yeah, absolutely. Because they were literally using these, like, this built-in sound hardware, whereas PC games were... Um, with the advent of things like Sound Blaster, you weren't really making music that was intended to be played on one specific chip because people could have all different soundtracks. So people were making music that was, it just, it was just different. It just led to a very yeah. different compositional style. Um, I and never actually I, ever thought about that, but yeah, that's, obviously that's the case. Yeah. And so a lot of the music for, for instance, LucasArts game, I think was more, um, I, I don't know what the word is, but like, less video gamey music yeah. i guess Le- less um, constrained basically like they could, they could yeah less constrained which can be a, which can be a bad thing i mean constraints can be a great thing yeah um but video game music i think means very different different things to different people because when you know to some people video game music is chip tunes and and i think me growing up it wasn't because i just didn't have as much exposure to that stuff um but i knew the names of those lucasarts composers and i also knew the designers of those games because lucasarts was really great about giving credit to its developers which I would wager most studios in the history of video games up until now are still not very good at. Um, LucasArts is really uh, good about crediting their individual designers and developers, and maybe that's because of their roots in film. I don't know, which obviously has a strong history of of crediting its its creators, but um, by by union regulation, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have that in games, but... LucasArts always was very good about that. It's and interesting you mention that because I spoke to, um, I, I don't mean to keep talking about other shows, but I spoke to no, no, a, a developer from, from India, a, a guy called um, Shalesh Prabhu, and he his his first kind of notion that games were made by people was Day of Tentacle because it has a credit sequence at the start. And yeah, it says written yeah. by, and he's like, oh, right. It also, so this on the front people. of the box, by the way, the designers are listed on the front of the box. Yeah, and I think that is very much more... Uh, a PC thing than a uh, than a console yeah. thing. Like it's always um, been the case. Really, I knew I knew that SimCity was by uh, was by uh, Wright. How, why can I not remember his first name? I'm disproving my own point here. Um, Will Wright. Will Wright. Of course. My God, I'm an idiot. Um, I knew that Civilization was by Sid Meier. Yeah. Um, I was I was uh, I knew that X Wing was by uh, uh, Larry. Um, oh, what was his name? Um, the Totally Games guy. Uh, Lawrence Holland, Larry Holland, um, all those names were on the front of the boxes, uh, which is so cool. Um, and I think that comes out of the sort of elect- 80s electronic arts philosophy of games are authored by people, not yeah. by companies. The, uh, the that, that great era of electronic arts when all their games were a game by this person or that person, because most of them were just written by one person at the time. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And that was something I, I, as a PC gamer, I just grew up with that assumption. And so, yeah, it, going all the way back to your music question i definitely grew up thinking that there was amazing music in these games that i knew who wrote it and i thought and that was really cool there were um 
there were some cases like the uh, the Sam and Max soundtrack. Or the if you had the CD version of that game, you could actually put the CD in a regular CD player, skip the first track, which was the game data, and then the entire rest of the CD was the soundtrack. They just burned the soundtrack to that actual game disc. I did so not that, know that. Yeah, you could just play the whole thing on your CD player. That's amazing. And I listened to that all the time. And, I mean, it was, you know, midi, hilarious crap, but, like, the music was really catchy and good. Um, and was that your first kind of, like, writing music? Was that your first foray into kind of game design, essentially? Not game design, but, you know what I mean, your first involvement no, with, with no, making no, not games, at all. no? No, I didn't. I only start no. Um, I, it's only been in the last few years that I've really... Um, been making much music for games i uh well i guess it's not technically true i guess technically 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 the very first game i ever contributed to no okay the first game i ever contributed to as a developer was psychonauts as a qa member okay in 2005 the second game i ever contributed to was the wii version of drawn to life which was not a very good game but i did music for that game um, but that was like, that wasn't a career thing. I mean, I got paid for it, but that wasn't a career thing. That was just like a thing that popped up. But, uh, but after that, it was several years until I did more music for games. Um, I worked at a, at a rational for a while. I worked at double fine for a while. And then while I was at double fine, I also did music for 30 flights of loving and gone home. Um, but I was also writing the cave with Ron Gilbert at the time. Um, and I had worked on Bioshock infinite. Um, in a in a couple of various roles, none of which were were music related. Um, How did that shift occur then? How did you start getting into development? Was that just a, a case um, of I was meeting people? By, and... I, was, I was recruited by Irrational Games. Not not just Irrational, but just in general. Like when you sort of started to how how did it, how did you come to do the music for Drawn to Life on the Wii, for instance? Was that just oh, a case oh, of um, that was a completely random? And... That was a totally random thing. So um, Jake's. Jake has a has a friend has a uh, a friend Jared Emerson Johnson who they've known each other since childhood, and Jared is a a really excellent video game composer, um, and he just needed a subcontractor for that game, and I think Jake must have said, I mean I knew Jared I don't remember if Jake said this to him or if he just approached me I honestly can't remember but I think he just needed more, ha- you know, hands on that yeah, to yeah, yeah. actually get the thing made. And I said, sure. And so, you know, I just, I, I worked on it actually with, um, uh, Rich Vreeland disaster piece, who is now an incredibly successful and just astonishingly talented video game composer. He did the soundtrack to Fez and the, the film it follows. And he and I both worked on this goofy Wii game in 2009. That is an excellent, excellent little yeah. bit of trivia. But that, that is like, has no relationship to any, any arc my career took that was like sort of a one-off weird thing although coincidentally um jared did end up doing a bunch of sound design for firewatch on which i was the audio director among other things um so we you know we worked together once on drawn to life and then again on firewatch that's amazing you know year many years later so so it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice for you to move into development it just kind of no it just kind of happened i was working at these came up yeah i was working at gamma sutra at the time which is a a a game development I, i i cite targeted at game developers yeah. so it's a, it's a website about uh, the issues uh, in the in the video game industry and video game creation and so i i, I knew a known I, I knew a lot about game development um and uh 
and um, ended up working at Irrational Games first as sort of community manager and web guy, um, and then I became a producer on the audio team, um, and I, I did other stuff. I was on the combat team for a while and um, various other things, um, but I mean, I wasn't an I don't I wouldn't I was not an important member of that team or anything. I was an incredibly junior um, member of the team, obviously, but uh, but that was that was sort of just that was when I first was involved with games kind yeah. of on a full-time basis and then i moved back to san francisco they're in boston so i moved back to san francisco um worked at double fine for a few years and did a, just a whole bunch of different things there um and then on the side was doing other was doing soundtracks for other games separately that must have been like so exciting to be working at double fine with clearly how yeah because how well, i had done Q- for you because well and because i had done qa there 10 years earlier on on psychonauts I suppose, um, yeah. I think because you mentioned that, I kind of compressed those two things into a very yeah. No, those were totally separate. So it was kind of a funny, weird. Um, but even just the first time, just to be like in the oh yeah, it was of, crazy. Like it oh was, my god, like getting to meet Tim. Well, the way I ended up uh, doing QA on Psychonauts in part was because um, I at the at Game Developers Conference in two thousand four, which I, I was sort of quote covering under the auspices of Idle Thumbs. Um, I was walking down the street in a full throttle Corley Motors T shirt. Full Throttle being um, Tim Schafer's 1995 LucasArts adventure yeah. game uh, about sort of biker culture. That game is made. I think that game is maybe the best written story in video games ever. It's got a good and, opening line. Oh, it's got. Oh, man, that opening of that game is. I mean, it, that is definitely the best introduction to any video. I mean, introductory cutscene, the best ever, in my opinion. And so anyway, I was walking down the street in San Jose um, in a, 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 a Full Throttle Corley Motors T-shirt which was also cool because there was no LucasArts branding on it. There was no full throttle branding on it. It was just the in-world Corley Motors. It was as though this T-shirt was made by Corley Motors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The company from the game. And there was no, like, winking acknowledgement of anything else, which even today is still... But was, was that, like, a, an official product? Or did you... It was an official product. It was okay, a LucasArts cool. product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and now that kind of thing happens a little bit more, but at the time was quite uncommon. Yeah. And, uh, and anyway, Tim Schafer was like, I made that game. He's a, he literally was just walking by me on the street, and he saw my T-shirt, and he's like, I made that. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're Tim Schafer. And so Would then you I met Tim Schafer. him, though? Was this kind of pre-internet? Oh, I totally or... recognize yeah, him. Yeah, because, because um, in the 90s, uh, I don't remember when they stopped doing this, but LucasArts had a sort of company quarterly newsletter that they included in their games called The Adventurer. And it had interviews with their designers and and developers and musicians and and it just had all kinds of cool stuff about their game. And again, this this was another way that they were really great about giving credit to their developers. You could learn who these people were and their names and see their yeah. photos. So so I knew what Tim Schafer looked like and was f- very familiar with his name and his work. Um, I played every game he worked on. Um, so yeah, no, I definitely knew who he was. What um what inspired you then to start a video game company? Essentially, like was that just it just well, seemed was- like you were all. Oh, we can all do this. Let's do this. Well, so Jake and Sean were the ones who who started it, and they and they had this idea for this game, Firewatcher. I mean, Sean really mainly had that idea, and um, and I had done a bunch of different things at um, at uh, at Double Fine. I did a lot of web development. I wrote a game there. I did the soundtrack for a game there. Um, I did a bunch of kind of uh, uh, development uh, like the database related development and stuff which I, I just I learned on the job really to support yeah. um, 
uh, backer infrastructure for the big Kickstarter they did. Um, I I just did a bunch of just really weird assorted. That's a good things. boot camp I, for being a dev, essentially. It, it really was, yeah. And then through like through Amnesia Fortnite, which is Double Fine's two week game internal game jam, I learned. Um, uh, so I, I learned some sort of gameplay programming, building on the web development that I had been teaching myself over the over the you know the years leading up to that. Um, how to sort of translate these programming skills I was learning into into a video game context. That was really cool. Um, so I just learned a lot about a bunch of different parts of game development. So I I'd gone through it at that at the small scale through um, like you know game jams and um, indie development at Double Fine, and then I'd been witness to kind of the larger scale arc of game development at Irrational. Um, so I kind of had a, a fairly broad exposure to different types of game development and different scale of projects. Yeah. Very different scale, right? Everything from like massive AAA, you know, tens of millions of dollar production down to like a couple people slamming out a game in two weeks. Um, and then, and then a double fine, really you get everything in between because double fine is such a diversity of projects. Um, and so I kind of thought, well, doing something new where I can be involved in multiple parts of the game is what I like. I mean, I love learning things on the job. I love expanding my skill set. That skill set that's really my favorite environment to be in. Yeah. And so on Firewatch, I was involved in story development. I did a bunch of game design. I did some game, some gameplay programming. Um, although, you know, again, I'm not an engineer by by. A trade or anything like that not even remotely close but um but i was just involved in a lot of i did our web did our music um i did our web development i did all the audio implementation um was it so fun? i just was it yeah it was, was it yeah. like a good time yeah i mean it was uh it was hard um for a lot of reasons there were personal life challenges that sort of exploded um during the development of that game that made that made it very difficult yeah um to do in parallel but uh you know there were a lot of things that made that development cycle one of i would say in total that period of my life is probably the most challenging my life has ever been <laughs> so <laughs> it's hard to like disentangle all that stuff but that's not anyone's fault none of that is anyone's fault yeah. you know it's just it's just how the dice fell but yeah, I, I mean, it was it was fun in a lot of it was really fun in a lot of ways. Also, yeah, for sure. Hey, I learned a sh I learned a shitload. So that's always that's always a good metric for me. And are you excited to sort of? I'm, I'm assuming that you guys are working on something new. So is that exciting to kind of move on to that next? Game? Yeah, I mean, we're we are so early. I mean, it's even I would say it's even a stretch to say we're working on something new. That's how early we are on something new. Um, so it's you know we. We are technically working on something new, but we're, you know, we've been trying to, we, we spent a while supporting Firewatch, making sure the game was patched up and in good, you know, taking into account um, stuff, the issues people were dealing with when the game was released. And, um, you know, we're still working on various sort of Firewatch related housekeeping and, you know, stuff that I can't talk about. But, um, but yeah, we are starting to explore what's next. And that's been very exciting. What um to, to to bring it back sort of full circle? What what do your your parents think that now you make video games? Uh, you know, it's a job, so they're fine. <laughs> they don't. I don't think. I, I mean, I think they're 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 sort of abstractly proud of me in the sense that I have somehow managed to stumble into a career. Which you know, I mean, sometimes people ask me for advice about getting in the video game industry, and it was so 
sort of accidental and circuitous in my yeah. case that there's just I it's very difficult I, I have eventually managed to distill a couple a couple threads of advice from my experience but it is definitely not directly mappable onto onto another person I don't think so I think it, meeting Jake Rodkin is a, is a key component <laughs> well yeah I mean actually honestly this is my big advice when people ask me is cultivate long-term friendships and cr especially creative partnerships Absolutely. I mean the music for Gone Home, I did, oh, I did the soundtrack to a game called Gone Home, yeah. which I, uh, I'm sure you know. And um, that was just because Steve Gaynor, who was the designer of that game, uh, he and I had known each other for a decade at that point. Um, he, you know, we were friends. We, uh, back, I mean, I remember back when Steve was still making mods for Fear and publishing them online in the hope to get a game design job and he eventually got a QA job and eventually turned that into a game design job and you know now is international game designer Steve Gaynor but you know he and I knew each other back when we were both bullshit you know and uh, you know we never worked together in a professional capacity until oh no that's not true we worked together at Irrational Games because I when I got hired there I referred him to also work there and so we did we but but again that was because we just knew each other on this more this friend level and sort of um the reason I oh got it goes even farther back because the reason I knew him because he applied to write for Idle Thumbs oh, no way, way. Back, way back in 2004. Yeah, I still have that email that he sent <laughs> us cold. And so he was an, an old Idle Thumbs writer going way back. Um, and, uh, and so uh, Steve, Jake, people, people like this who I've just known for years and years and Nick Brecken, people who I who I gave a job to at Shack News. Um, just cultivating relationships with people you know are talented, even if you, even if they don't necessarily have anything to show for it yet, you know. Yeah. Like none of us, back when we all were first friends, like none of us really had careers or anything to sort of like announce as like, ah, yes, here is my amazing creation. Like none of us had that, but I was highly aware that these people were very intelligent, more intelligent and talented than I was, um, and surrounding myself with them has ended up it was not intentional at the time but has ended up being extraordinarily beneficial to me um anyway as far as what my parents think they i don't think they understand what exactly my job is but i think they're happy that i have one so that so, they haven't played the game or anything you haven't sort of sat them down no i don't think either of my parents has ever touched a video game in their i mean literally i'm not like exaggerating i don't think either of them has interacted with a video game ever in any way shape <laughs> or form um you know, but I, but they're again, they're glad that I'm that I'm doing something and I'm I'm happy about it. So absolutely, well, well, that is that is a, a nice place to end on. Thanks so much for chatting, Chris. Um, actually, if if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up in a conversation or anything that you wanted to mention, please take this opportunity to do so. HTTP colon slash slash idlethumbs dot net. We have a lot of podcasts you can subscribe to. Good, and and they're very good. <laughs> they're very good. That, that yep. was pretty shameless, but that's okay. That's oh, absolutely entirely fine. shameless. I don't care. <laughs> um, brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Chris. Um, have have a, a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Um, thanks, Declan. That was a lot of fun. Good, good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs>